Chapter 2. It is Written by Dwight L. Moody. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul declares, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But there are some people who tell us, when we take up prophecy, that it is all very well to be believed, but that there is no use in anyone trying to understand it, that future events are things that the church does not agree about, and it's better to leave them alone, and deal only with those prophecies that have already been fulfilled. But Paul does not talk that way. He says, All Scripture is profitable for teaching doctrine. If these people are right, he ought to have said, Some Scripture is profitable but you can't understand the prophecies, so you'd better leave them alone. If God did not mean for us to study the prophecies, He would not have put them into the Bible. Some of them are fulfilled, and He is fulfilling the rest, so that if we don't see them all completed in this life, we will in the world to come. Prophecy, as has been said, is the mold in which history is cast. About one-third of the Bible is prophetical and a large portion of the remainder is typical of things that were to come. Three great comings are foretold in the Word of God. First, that Christ would come. That has been fulfilled. Secondly, that the Holy Spirit would come. That was fulfilled at Pentecost, and the church is able to testify to it by its experience of His saving grace. Third, the return of our Lord from heaven. For this we are told to watch and wait until He comes. I don't want to teach anything dogmatically on my own authority, but to my mind this precious doctrine, for such I must call it, of the return of the Lord to this earth is taught in the New Testament as clearly as any other doctrine in it. If you read Matthew 26.64, you'll find that it was just this very thing that caused His death. When the high priests asked Him who He was, and if he was the true Messiah, what does he reply? I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That was enough. The moment they heard that, they accused him of blasphemy and condemned him to death, just because he said he was coming again. Whoever neglects this has only a mutilated gospel. For the Bible teaches us not only of the death and sufferings of Christ, but also of His return to reign in honor and glory. His second coming is mentioned and referred to over three hundred times. Yet I was in the church fifteen or sixteen years before I ever heard a sermon on it. There is hardly any church that does not make a great deal of baptism, but in all of Paul's epistles I believe baptism is spoken of only thirteen times, while he speaks about the return of our Lord fifty times, and yet the church has had very little to say about it. Now, I can see a reason for this. The devil does not want us to see this truth, for nothing would wake up the church so much. The moment a man realizes that Jesus Christ is coming back again to receive his followers to himself, this world loses its hold upon that man. Gas stocks, water stocks, and stocks in banks and railroads are of very much less consequence to him then. His heart is free, 
and he looks for the blessed appearing of his Lord, who, at his coming, will take him into his blessed kingdom. Some people say, the prophecies are all good for the priests and clergy, but not for the rank and file of the church. But Peter says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter 1.21. And those men are the very ones who tell us of the return of our Lord. Look at Daniel, where he tells the meaning of that stone that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy, says Daniel. Daniel 2.45. Now, we have seen the fulfillment of that prophecy, everything but the closing part of it. The kingdoms of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome have all been broken in pieces, and now it only remains for this stone, cut out of the mountain without hands, to strike the image and break it in pieces till it becomes like the dust of the summer threshing floor and for this stone to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. But how will he come? We are told how he is going to come. When the disciples stood looking up into heaven at the time of his ascension, there appeared two angels, who said to them, Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How did he go up? He took his flesh and bones up with him. Luke 24, 39. Scripture, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, the angel said, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. An angel was sent to announce his birth to Mary. Angels sang of his coming in Bethlehem. An angel told the women of his resurrection. Two angels told the disciples of his coming again. It is the same testimony in all these cases. I do not know why people don't like to study the Bible and find out all about this precious doctrine of our Lord's return. Some have gone beyond prophecy and have tried to tell the very day He will come. Perhaps that's one reason why people don't believe this doctrine. He is coming, we know that, but just when He's coming, we don't know. Matthew settles that, but of that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Matthew 24, 36. The angels don't know. It's something the Father keeps to Himself. In Luke we read, The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Luke 12, 40. McCheney, the Scottish preacher, once said to some friends, Do you think Christ will come tonight? One after another said, I don't think so. When everyone had given this answer, he solemnly repeated this text, The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 
Commenting on the text, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, Acts 1 7, Spurgeon said, If I were introduced into a room where a large number of parcels were stored up, and I was told that there was something good for me, I would begin to look for that which had my name upon it. And when I came upon a parcel and I saw in pretty big letters, It is not for you, I would leave it alone. Here, then, is a casket of knowledge marked, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Cease to meddle with matters that are concealed, and be satisfied to know the things that are clearly revealed. If Christ had said, I will not come back for two thousand years, none of his disciples would have begun to watch for him until the time was near. But it is the proper attitude of a Christian to be always looking for his Lord's return. So, God does not tell us when Christ is to come, but he tells us to watch. Just as Simeon and Anna watched and waited for his first coming, so should true believers watch and wait for his return. It's not enough to say you are a Christian and that you are all right. You are not all right unless you obey the command to watch. We find also that he is to come unexpectedly and suddenly. Scripture For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, 27. And again, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Matthew 24, 44. Some people say that means death, but the Word of God does not say it means death. Death is our enemy, but our Lord has the keys of death. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave, and at any moment He may come to set us free from death and destroy our last enemy for us. In the last chapter of John, there is a text that seems to settle this matter. Peter asks the question about John, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. John 21, 21 to 23. They did not think that the coming of the Lord meant death. There was a great difference between these two things in their minds. Christ is the Prince of life. There is no death where He is. Death flees at His coming. Dead bodies sprang to life when He touched them or spoke to them. His coming is not death. He is the resurrection and the life. When He sets up His kingdom, there is to be no death, but life forevermore. Look at that account of the last hours of Christ with His disciples. What does He say to them? If I go away, I will send death after you to bring you to me? Or, I will send an angel after you? Not at all. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. John 14, 3. It is this that makes John 14 so sweet. There is another mistake, as you will find if you read your Bible carefully. Some think that at the second coming of Christ everything is to be brought about in a few minutes, but I do not understand it that way. 
The first thing he is to do is to take his church out of the world. He calls the church his bride, and he says he is going to prepare a place for her. We may judge, says one, what a glorious place it will be from the length of time he is in preparing it, and when the place is ready, he will come and take the church to himself. In the closing verses of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 14 to 18, Paul says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is the comfort of the church. If my wife were in a foreign country, and I had a beautiful mansion all ready for her, she would much rather that I would come and bring her to it than to have me send someone else to bring her. He has prepared a mansion for his bride, the church, and he promises for our joy and comfort that he will come himself and bring us to the place he has been preparing all this time. There was a time when I used to mourn that I will not be alive in the millennium, but now I expect to be in the millennium. Dean Alford says, and almost everybody bows to him in the matter of interpretation, that he must insist that this coming of Christ to take his church to himself in the clouds is not the same event as his coming to judge the world at the last day. The deliverance of the church is one thing. Judgment is another. Christ will save his church, but he will save her finally by taking her out of the world. Some may shake their heads and say, Oh, well, that's too deep for most of us. Such things should not be said before young converts. Only the very wisest people, such as the ministers and professors in the theological seminaries, can understand them. But, my friends, Paul wrote about these things to the young converts among the Thessalonians, and he told them to comfort one another with these words. Here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10, Paul says, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. To wait for His Son, that is the true attitude of every child of God. If He is doing that, He is ready for the duties of life, ready for God's work. Yes, that makes him feel that he is just ready to begin to work for God. Then, over in the next chapter, he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus and his coming? 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Still again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, 
without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has something to say about this same thing in every chapter. Indeed, I have thought this epistle to the Thessalonians might be called the Gospel of Christ's Coming Again. Take the account of the words of Christ at the communion table. It seems to me the devil has covered up the most precious thing about it. Scripture, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11.26 But most people seem to think that the Lord's table is the place for self-examination and repentance and making good resolutions. Not at all. They spoil it that way. It is to show forth the Lord's death, and we are to observe it till He comes. Some people say, I believe Christ will come on the other side of the millennium. Where do they get that? I can't find it. The Word of God nowhere tells me to watch and wait for signs of the coming of the millennium, but for the coming of the Lord, to be ready at midnight to meet Him like those five wise virgins. At one time I thought the world would grow better and better until Christ could stay away no longer. But in studying the Bible I don't find any place where God says so, or that Christ is to have a spiritual reign on earth of a thousand years. I find that the world is to grow worse and worse, and that at length there is going to be a separation. Scripture, On that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Luke 17, 34-35 The church is to be transported out of the world, and of this we have two examples already, two representatives, as we might say, in Christ's kingdom, of what is to be done for all His true believers. Enoch is the representative of the first dispensation, Elijah of the second, and as a representative of the third dispensation we have the Saviour Himself, who entered into the heavens for us and became the firstfruits of them that slept. We are not to wait for the great white throne judgment, but for the glorified church set on the throne with Christ and to help judge the world. Now, some think this is a new and strange doctrine, and that they who preach it are speckled birds. But let me say that many spiritual men in the pulpits of Great Britain, as well as in this country, are firm in this faith. Spurgeon preached it. I have heard Newman Hall say that he knew no reason why Christ might not come before he got through with his sermon. But in certain churches, where they have the form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, just the state of things that Paul declares will be in the last days, this doctrine is not preached or believed. They don't want sinners to cry out in their meetings, What must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30. They want intellectual preachers who will cultivate their taste, brilliant preachers who will rouse their imagination, but they don't want the preaching that has in it the power of the Holy Spirit. We live in the day of shams in religion. The church is cold and formal. May God wake us up. And I know of no better way to do it than to get the church to look for the return of our Lord. Some people say, Oh, you'll discourage the young converts if you preach that doctrine. Well, my friends, 
that has not been my experience. I have felt like working three times as hard ever since I came to understand that my Lord was coming back again. I look on this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and has said to me, Moody, save everyone you can. God will come in judgment to this world, but the children of God do not belong to this world. They are in it, but not of it, like a ship in the water. And their greatest danger is not the opposition of the world, but their own conformity to the world. This world is getting darker and darker. Its ruin is coming nearer and nearer. If you have any unsaved friends on this wreck, you had better lose no time in getting them off. But someone will say, Do you then make the grace of God a failure? No, grace is not a failure, but man is. The antediluvian world was a failure. The Jewish world was a failure. Man has been a failure everywhere when he has had his own way and has been left to himself. When the Son of God left heaven and came to this sin-cursed earth to open up a new and living way whereby we might return to God, the earth would give him no better quarters than a manger for his birthplace, no place to lay his head during the years of his ministry, and only the cruel cross in his death. Nowhere in the Scriptures is it claimed that the whole world will be brought to the feet of Christ in this dispensation. In Acts 15.14, James says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's one reason for our Lord's delay. He's waiting until the elect are all gathered out, until his bride is complete. Now, don't take my word for it. Look this doctrine up in your Bible, and, if you find it there, bow down to it and receive it as the Word of God. Take Matthew 24, 50-51. Scripture, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Take Second Peter 3, 3-4. In the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Go out on the streets and ask men about the return of our Lord, and that is just what they would say, Ah, yes, the Lord delays his coming. I don't plan to trouble myself about it. It will not be while I am alive. But Peter goes on to say, in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. We have no right, then, to say when it will not come, any more than we have to say when it will come. As someone has said, Christ's second coming does not occur so quickly as impatience, nor yet so late as carelessness supposes. There is another thought I want to bring to your attention, and that is, an interval of time ensues between this meeting of all his saints in the air and his coming with all his saints to execute judgment upon the ungodly, to chain Satan in the bottomless pit for the thousand years, and to establish the millennial reign in great power and glory. 
Scripture, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with Him for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Revelation 20, 6, 5. That looks as if the church were to reign a thousand years with Christ before the final judgment of the great white throne, when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and there will be new heavens and a new earth. When Christ returns, he will not be treated as he was before. There will be room for him at Bethlehem. He will be welcomed in Jerusalem. He will reveal himself as Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. He will say to the Jews, I am Jesus, and they will reply, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 21, 9. And the Jews will then be that nation that will be born in a day. I am coming quickly, Christ said to John. Three times it's repeated in the last chapter of the Bible. And almost the closing words of the Bible are the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. Were the early Christians disappointed then? No. No man is disappointed who obeys the voice of God. The world waited for the first coming of the Lord. They waited for four thousand years, and then he came. He was here only thirty-three years, and then he went away. But he left us a promise that he would come again. And, as the world watched and waited for his first coming, and did not watch in vain, so now, to them who wait for his appearing, he will appear a second time unto salvation. Now let the question go around, Am I ready to meet the Lord if He comes tonight? You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will.